started when I was 23, and I'm just a little bit older, older than that now. I, I wonder what can I say different this seven last words uh, service, you know what I'm saying? And, and I thought, well, I've been to school, I'll just walk through this line and I'll just take my seat. But the Holy Spirit said, no. I want you to issue a challenge to my church on Good Friday. So that being said, I want you to open up your hearts and minds to what the Spirit of the Lord will speak to the church. Amen. Luke 23 and 34 says, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. God in heaven, uh, the flower of faith and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord shall stand. Lord, would you be with us during this sacred preaching moment? God, I ask that you would think with my mind and speak with my mouth. Uh, step into my body and preach. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Can you say amen? Seven remarkable words that Christ spoke after he was nailed to the cross and before he died, and this was the first. Uh, he was caught between a rock and a hard place, as it were, because Jesus is between uh, the piercing pain of penetrating nails and the separation of the spirit from the body. Now, I cannot exaggerate the importance of how uh, important it is that this was the first word that Jesus spoke from the cross. It's almost like Jesus is saying, if I don't say anything else while I'm here, first things first. So what I want you to know is that he was crucified. His hands and his feet were nailed to a cross. And this was the most painful and most shameful death that our Savior and our Lord could endure. And the soldiers, they, they made a spectacle out of it. They, they cast lots for his clothes for a bonus, as it were. He didn't deserve the death that he died. He, he died for crimes that he did not commit. And, and, and he, he didn't deserve the treatment that he got. He didn't deserve the nails that were put in his hands. He didn't deserve the crown of thorns that was put in his head. And he did not deserve to be crucified. You know, there's one passage of Scripture that comes to mind. What manner of man is this that the wind and the sea obey his voice? They would see Jesus and he would tell the sea to stop and it would. But that doesn't really issue a challenge for us because you nor I know anyone else that can tell the sea to shut up. <laughs> that doesn't really issue a challenge for us. That sort of kind of puts the world of the text there and it puts us here. And we say God is so powerful and God is so strong and he's so mighty. Look at God because you nor I uh, know anyone that has ever commanded the sea to stop. But see, in Matthew 5 and 44, it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if I could remix it, I might say something like this. What manner of man is this that can forgive his enemies? Oh, there's a challenge. Now, there's some tension there. 
Because it's, it's really easy to come to church and to hear sermons and we want to know more about God. But what does he have to do with you and your life? You see, what manner of man is this that accepts his accusers? What, what kind of love is this that is on the inside of him that forgives those who fault him? When he says, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. He's saying, Father, forgive them, not only these who are present, but all that shall repent and believe the gospel. Oh, that's good news this, this afternoon. You see, they triumphed over him as if they had conquered him, whereas he himself was more than a conqueror. They, they challenged him to save himself from the cross when he himself was saving others by the cross. You see, he was put to death for pretending to be the king of Jews, and he was the king of Jews. So why extend forgiveness? Why should you extend forgiveness? You know what the Bible says. It says you have alt against your brother. Lay your gift at the altar. Go and get that right and then come back. So first things first, church, before we go one step forward in this Holy Week, one step forward in this resurrection season, do you have unforgiveness in your heart? You see, and he says, forgive them because they do not know what they do. You know what? There are things that you and I have done out of ignorance, and God waited patiently for us until we came into the knowledge of his saving grace. Oh, don't look at me with that tone of voice. If God were to punish us for every single thing that we've ever done, how many of you know we had already been gone? But he waits patiently for us. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And there are things that we did out of ignorance before we came into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the Lord lovingly and patiently waited on each of us. Can you forgive? You may feel as though life has been hard on you. But I want you to know that we are not objects of his wrath. But we are rather objects of his love. So preacher, how can you forgive? I'm glad you asked. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters, lifting me, now safe am I. That's how I can forgive. So what do we do? Since God has forgiven us of our trespasses, we must forgive those who trespass against us. You know, one of my favorite commercials is the uh, Motel 6 commercial. And you know the classic line, Will, oh my God, we need cable TV in Uptown. The commercial, this commercial is like 40 years old, okay. The Motel 6 commercial says, we'll leave the light on for you. Okay, that's what it says. That it always ends with the. Uh, we don't have fancy amenities necessarily. Uh, this is not an expensive hotel, but we'll leave the light on for you. It's as though uh, the writers of this commercial are trying to communicate that I understand that the road that you may have to travel uh, may be treacherous. I understand that the road that you travel may be dark. I understand that. 
but you may have obstacles and you may have offenses and you may have things that penetrate your very soul. But on your place to rest, I will leave the light on for you. Lean in and I'm done. What Jesus is saying to us is I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. And as long as you're here, I will leave the light on for you to come to your senses and repent of your sins so you might as well forgive those who trespass against you. Oh, but preacher, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they said about me. And you're asking me to forgive them? Brothers and sisters, Christ dying on the cross was the most magnanimous presentation of, the, of love that the world will ever see. This word magnanimous, it communicates an overly generous display of love even to his enemies. May I remind you that we were all once his enemies because we were dead in trespasses and sins. And while we were yet his enemies, he called us into a relationship with him. And we would still be his enemies because without the work of the cross, none of us get a status change. He loved those who lied on him. He cared for those who cursed him. He prayed for his persecutors. He he. he he saved those who set him up. He died for those who deserted him. He extended grace for those who ganged up on him. He forgave those who faulted him. And because his cross was the way to his crown, can you forgive? Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters. God, I know that some of us have had some serious offenses. God, I pray for these pastors. I know that some of them have had some serious offenses. God, I pray for the worship leaders and the, uh, the worship workers and, and all of the people that are represented here that have had some serious offenses. But Father, none of it can compare to uh, nails in our hands and our feet and a crown of thorns in our head and being temporarily separated from our Father and dying a shameful and painful sinner's death. So, Father, we ask you to be our example. The first thing you said was forgive them. So, Father, the first thing that we want to do right now where we are, we want to pray. And we want to say, Father, we give you over unforgiveness in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. morning, church. Good afternoon, I should say. It's good to be together in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Again, we, uh, we ought to remember the privilege we have in our country to gather. There are some places in this world where the saints don't get to gather in the freedom that we get to, to gather in. And so uh, praise God for that. Amen. You know, as I've been reflecting on the passion of Christ, uh, the events building up or leading up to the crucifixion of Christ, the death and his resurrection this past week, I've been guided to consider some of the passages, some of the, the ideas that are less obvious to consider in the scriptures that's tucked into the storyline of the passion. For instance, uh, we spoke at the Family Empowerment Centers uh, this past weekend about the triumphant, triumphant entry into Jerusalem and at our church. And most of us know the story, right? We know the story. Jesus is entering Jerusalem 
on a donkey, and the crowd, they're gathering around, and they're cheering for their king, and they're excited, and they begin to disrobe. They take off their coats, and they start placing them on the ground in front of Jesus, in front of the donkey as he's moving towards Jerusalem. And others are grabbing palm trees. They're ripping off palm branches from the trees, and they start waving them, and they're excited as they wave them in the air, and Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. You know, I pointed out to our congregation that the celebration was probably similar to the celebration here in Chicago as our Cubbies won the World Series a few years ago, right? It was near euphoria. People were excited. They were climbing telephone poles. They were climbing on cars. They were celebrating in the streets. But as they were caught up in the celebration, I wonder how many of them that, that day that Jesus was moving towards Jerusalem, how many of them How many of them recognized that Jesus was weeping? How many of us recognize in that storyline, verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it? Church. Jesus, in the midst of a celebration, was weeping over the people in Jerusalem. In the midst of a euphoric celebration surrounding his coronation, so to speak, Jesus is found weeping over the people of the city of Jerusalem. The city where God's people gathered together. The epicenter for God being with his people and his people being with their God. He's weeping over the broken nature of their relationship with God. The people didn't understand how much they were loved by God. They didn't understand the depth of his message. They were celebrating his royalty and his kingship without any idea what the kingdom of God meant. They were celebrating the idea of being free from under the thumb of Roman rule when with Jesus, God wanted to provide for them was freedom to be in relationship with him. The freedom to be in relationship with him. See, God's greatest desire is to be with his people and for his people to be with him. Two other times we see Jesus weep in the scriptures. The first is over his friend Lazarus, right, who died. And he weeps, and he sees the sorrow of his family members and friends. In this case, we know the end of the story, right? Jesus decides it's not quite his time, right? And Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. The next time Jesus weeps is in the garden as he's praying to the Father. He was so burdened in prayer by what was about to happen that he cries out to the Father and is asking, hey, if this cup can be passed from me, if this cup can be removed from me. In other words, he was pleading with God that if there was some other way to reconcile man back to himself without the suffering that he would have to endure, without the separation he would have to experience from the Father, that he'd like it. He'd like for it to be passed on, moved on, that there'd be some other plan. Who wouldn't, right? But that wasn't the best plan, church. That wasn't the best plan. It records that he was so intensely seeking God that blood like sweat was dropping from his forehead. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, it says that in that prayer time that Jesus lifted his voice with loud cries and he wept. And he wept. He wept over what was going to be a broken relationship with the Father. As you'll hear later today, Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, cries out, My God, my God, 
Why hast thou forsaken me? Separation, church, from the Father was the ultimate painful experience even for Jesus. And so in the garden, in those moments of deep prayer, Jesus wept. He wept over the thought of a broken relationship. And so as I'm contemplating today's passage in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43, it's another story about a broken relationship between man and God. It's a moment in the course of Jesus' journey to and on the cross where there's a distinction between the characters, those who, who see and those who do not, those who are self-aware and those who are not, those who humbly recognize God and those who do not, those who are drawn to God and those who reject God. In the scene, there are two criminals that are going to be crucified next to Jesus. There are those who are rejecting Christ through betrayal and verbal assault. There are the religious leaders, the guards, the Roman officials, and, and although not stated, I'm sure there were some who were quietly waiting, trying to understand what was going on, watching things unfold. It then reads this way, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. When you come into your kingdom, Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Our human tendency is to get wrapped up in the storyline. Two bad guys hanging next to Jesus. Jesus, this innocent man hanging as well on a cross. Two unjust people receiving their just punishment. Jesus, this perfect man, falsely accused, receiving what amounts to an unjust punishment. I imagine if you could put yourself at the scene, it was more terrible than can be understood by reading the words on a page. Pain and suffering, brokenness, misery, anguish. And then a conversation emerges. What was a static scene of random people now becomes a more intimate, relational encounter. Criminal A begins to hurl insults at Jesus as he joins in with the crowd. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. His view of Jesus was influenced by the crowd. His view of Jesus was shaped by his pain. His interpretation of that pain and his own solution to that pain. He's hanging next to this man who is God but never recognizes who he is. All he can think about is soothing his own pain by being free from his circumstances. Get us off this cross, Jesus. Get us off this cross. But, but, I love that transition word because it infers a different angle. It infers a different perspective, an alternative. But, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? We are being punished justly. We are getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. 
criminal B is separating himself from the crowd. He's separating himself from the other criminal on the cross. Something is transforming for this second criminal. Then he says to Jesus, and I don't know if he has the ability to look at Jesus when he says this, uh, what the context is, how much pain everybody's experiencing, what the sounds are that are, are moving about, but I imagine if he had the strength, that he would turn to Jesus with a soft, unassuming voice, he must have had his head bowed and asked Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's not asking to be delivered from his sufferings. He's not asking for some royal position in the kingdom. He's not asking Jesus to exert any power over the context of what is going on. He's not even asking to be removed from the cross. He's humbly asking the Lord to be with him. He's humbly asking if he could be with Jesus. The only thing that mattered to that criminal, criminal on the cross was to be in the presence of Jesus. I doubt it even mattered where the location or the destination might be, so long as Jesus was there. There's something to be said about feeling where this criminal was in his response to Jesus. Oh, there are so many days, church, so many days in this world, in this life that I live, where all I want to do is be in the presence of Jesus Christ. The only true and lasting peace to be experienced in this world is not the freedom from uncomfortable circumstances, but being in the presence of the Prince of Peace, Jesus. And Jesus says, truly. In other words, without a doubt, as surely as you and I are real, as sure as the sun rises and sets, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And half of you missed it already because immediately you got focused on the destination. And although the destination is important, it's not as important as the statement, today you will be with me. Today, you will be with me. Today, you will be with me. You see, it doesn't matter where we are so long as Jesus is there, church. It's being in the presence of Jesus that makes all the difference in the world. He with us and us with him. You realize, I hope, that you can be in the same room with Jesus and still not be in his presence. Jesus, God, wants to have a personal relationship with you and I. He weeps over the brokenness of our relationship with him, and he rejoices over each person that turns to him and bows and says, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Look inside your own soul today. Are you part of the crowd that is fighting against him? 
Are you the one seeking God on your terms? Asking for what you want the way you want it. Are you like the religious leaders who want to keep their power? Church. Or are you like the criminal on the cross who simply bows and asks Jesus to remember him? Reach for Jesus today, church. Look to be with Jesus today. Jesus desires to be with you today. His desire is to be with us today, church. Amen. Um, you know, you know what's amazing? Jesus is amazing. <laughs> you know, I, I, this whole Easter season thing has just been coming at me so quickly. Like, I haven't had time to sit there from Lent and really just, like, process everything. But, like, this week I have been. And I'm just really thinking of how Jesus was the most perfect person ever. The most, I'm, he, he was per. He was the definition of perfect. Is what Jesus was, and the fact that God said, "Okay, you're going to go on the cross for these dirty, down low sinner people." Um, yeah, you're you're going to die for them. Can Can you imagine? Like, who would want to do that? Who would want to, after living the most perfect life, die and give their life away from someone who does not even deserve it, for someone so low down and just messed up? As we are. It's it's amazing. Is that not okay, y'all, y'all not y'all not feeling me. Is that not crazy? That's insane. And so, you know, it's just got me feeling about it's like really an overwhelming feeling. We that he would just he loves us so 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 much. No matter how beaten and how broken and dirty that we are, he chose to die. Sing, you dance. You dance over me while I am unaware. You sing
Lord, I'm amazed. Lord, I'm amazed. Lord, I'm amazed by you. Lord, I'm amazed by you. How you love me. One more time. Lord, I'm amazed. the day on the day that death surrendered to the mighty cross of Jesus Christ the earth would shake beneath the weight of darkened sky on his brow on his brow a crown of sorrow for a king whose weakness was our strength no word he spoke his love was shown for all to see 
of the cross. Oh, the cross of Jesus Christ is the reason I'm alive. For his blood has sent me free. It will never Now the dawn, now the dawn of resurrection floods the night as hope prevails to shine. Salvation wakes our chains to break, and we arise. Oh, the of Jesus Christ is the reason I'm alive for his blood has sent me free it will never lose its power for me hallelujah Hallelujah, Christ my victory, yeah, hallelujah, hallelujah, it is one for me. Oh, the cross. On the day. On the day he comes in glory to reveal the fullness of his reign, our hearts will bow before the sound of Jesus' name. Oh, the of Jesus Christ is the reason I'm alive for his blood has set me free it will never lose its power for me it will never lose its power for me it will never lose its power for me. Good afternoon, everybody, and greetings from Africa. I, I say that because I just came back from two and a half weeks in Africa. I was in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Ghana, and came back yesterday night. So glad to be here. So um, 
as I was praying and studying for today, um, I'm supposed to, to speak about the third word, third last word of Jesus on the cross. As I was studying, one of the first things I saw was that the first three words were about what Jesus thinking about other people while he was on the cross. So, for example, the first one, when he said, Father, forgive them, he was thinking about his enemies, people that crucified him. And then the second one, when he spoke to the, the thief and said, you'll be with me in paradise, he was thinking about the criminal. Then the third one was a bit, you know, at first puzzling. You know, I was just praying about it, which is what I'm supposed to speak about. Jesus was thinking about his mother. And then he goes on, the last four, he began to talk about the experiences that he was going through. I thirst and so on. But the first three were about other people. So the first thing that came to my mind, which is what I would like to say today, is that knowing the heart of Jesus then, because it's the same today, yesterday, and what? And forever. The heart of Jesus is for us. Jesus puts us first. He puts others first. And the others we're talking about, we're talking about enemies, we're talking about criminals, we're talking about people who have offended. And that's talking about us. So the Lord Jesus Christ puts us first, even now. And that's very comforting to me. That's very encouraging to me. And I, I think it's a major part of uh, the story of, of our redemption. But if you now go down to the third word, um, if you look at the passage, I think we, we could just read a, uh, the, that part of the passage, which is John chapter 19. I will read from verse 25 to 27. It says, Standing by the cross... Of Jesus where his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciples, Behold your mother. And said, From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So that's the um you know, the, the passage where the, the third statement is made. But look at the context. Look at what was happening. First of all, the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross, so he was in, he was in pain, right? He was in pain. He was doing something that is the most consequential thing that will ever be done, which is the redemption of our souls. And then in the midst of that, he pauses and then begins to talk about something that has to do with human relationships. So if you, if you, I mean, if you like illustration, it's like everything he was doing was about reconciling us to God, right? Forgive them. You'll be with me in paradise, right? Every other thing. Then he pauses and then begins to deal with something that has to do with, that's more horizontal, which has to do with relationship. So first thing we can see from that, for Jesus Christ to speak that word and to do that, while such an important thing was going on, it must be very important too. 
Secondly, it must be part of God's plan for redemption. What he was doing there. Because those seven last words were weighty words. I believe none of them were uttered by Jesus Christ just because he wanted to utter them. There was something he was trying to pass across to us. And I think the message he's trying to pass across to us is this. That in our reconciliation to God, we have a responsibility to one another. We have a responsibility to one another. And the responsibility to one another starts with our responsibility to our families. That's what he was, he was trying to show us by example. So look at what he was thinking about. He was thinking about what we will call mundane while he was on the cross. He was thinking about how is my mom going to be okay, right, when I'm gone? Where is she going to live when I'm gone? So Jesus was thinking about accommodation. He was thinking about housing. He was thinking about food. He was thinking about the care of his mom while he was on the cross and redeeming all of humanity. So for people who think that the gospel is only about the soul. Now, the, the gospel is primarily about the soul, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is holistic. It's also about relationships. It's also about the, our environment. It's also about us. It's about our whole life. It's a whole gospel. So he was showing us there. So there's a part of the gospel of Jesus and what he was doing on the cross that was passing across to us that we have responsibilities to one another. And this is a good time, Good Friday time, Easter time is a good time to remind ourselves that we have responsibility to one another and it's part of the gospel story. We have responsibility to our families, obligations to our families. So we see two obligations there, two kinds of obligations. There was Jesus Christ's obligation to his mom, right? So that, that seems very simple, right? We have some kind of connection. This was the woman that bore him, right? This was the one that the angel came to. This was the one that took care of him when he was young. And this was the woman that stood by him. So that was a responsibility that we could understand, right? So we have that kind of a responsibility or obligation to people who are related to us by blood or in one way or the other. But then we see the second type of obligation there where Jesus Christ now turns to John and says, now behold your mother and then turns and told, told the mom, behold your son. Now John and Jesus Christ had no blood relationship. This was a transferred obligation. Jesus Christ transferred that obligation and they said John took up the responsibility and took her to his house. That's talking about the second kind of obligation we have. And that's for those who are not related to us by blood. But who happen to have been committed into our hand by the Lord as a result of either us going to the same church, living in the same city, living in the same, right? People that we hear about, people that we see on the street corners, that Jesus Christ says, you know what? I'm making you your brother's keepers. So John took the child. It was just John, John, I'm making you my mom's keeper. That's all. There was no discussion about it. And say so John took it up. So the question I would like to ask us today is this. In those two areas, could we, I mean, what, what do we want to do with that this Easter? Those two areas of obligation. First of all, those that we are related to by blood. Our fathers, our mothers, our brothers, and our sisters. 
Then secondly, what about the other ones that the Lord gave us obligation to by telling us, you take care of them, like he did to John? Are we going to respond like John and take up the responsibility, even though it will cost us a little? It's going to cost somebody coming to live in our house. I, I was studying that. It said Mary lived in, her house, in his house for about 11 years. And they said, some, some scholars said that he even took her, when he was traveling, he took her uh, to, you know, to where he was going. So that was a long-term resp- long responsibility. It's costly. And when somebody lives in your house, you know how messy it can be. Yeah, when you bring someone into your household, especially somebody who's not related to you and all that, you know how messy it can be. That's what John did. So I believe that in redemption also, in Easter, Good Friday, one of the messages that Jesus was trying to pass across to us with these words is, I'm going to need you to open up your hearts like I did to my mom related to me and like John did to somebody unrelated to him but who happened to have been committed into his hand by the Lord. So let's think a bit about that. Who are those people? I believe the Lord will bring certain people to your mind. And what I want us to pray is that the Lord will help us this Easter to see those that fit those two categories that are in our lives. And that we'll be able to show them his love and show them his care. Just like he showed us that he cared. Even in the midst of great suffering and of, of something of great importance that he was doing. Finally, there's nothing we're doing. What he was telling us, there's nothing that we're doing that should be more, well, that should be so important that our eyes are closed to these things, these obligations. Not the work of what we call the work of the gospel, because he was doing the work of redemption. There should be nothing that we're doing that should, tell, that should make us close our eyes to these obligations that he has given to us, because they are equally important according to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Father, I just pray. Thank you for your word. Lord, we ask you that you yourself will touch our hearts and speak to our hearts. Help us to see those who are around us that need our care. Thank you for showing us that you care about us and you care about even what we call mundane things and that you are never too busy, too occupied, to think about those little things. Help us to be like you, to just follow your example. Just walk within us and walk through us. Help us to see those that we have an obligation to help, to house, to, to stand with, to take care of, that are related to us, and those that are unrelated to us, but that you have committed into our hands by reason of what your spirit is pointing us to as we see them, as we hear about them, Maybe orphans, maybe, maybe people that, that are homeless. It doesn't, the people that you keep bringing to our hearts that these are your brothers. And these, are, these people, as I cared for my mom, I cared for these ones. And I, and I want you to be like John, to take care of them. Lord, help us to see those people. And Lord, let your name continue to be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Greg.
um, would you close your eyes with me for a moment? And um, the word of God says that uh, it was noon and utter darkness surrounded the planet. Noon, up until around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. When Jesus gave a loud cry. Eloi, Eloi, lama basamabaktani. My God, my God, why? Why? Then Matthew and Mark says that after another loud cry, he gave the spirit. He breathed. He breathed his last, hung his head. Out of darkness. The word, the question, why? The deepest of all human questions, why? Hey, you can open your eyes up. And um, I hadn't realized until I was um, reading through again the story and um, the stories through the Gospels and um, thinking about you and about this moment and about this fourth word. And um, I hadn't realized that uh, these are the only words that Matthew puts on Jesus' lips as he's hanging on the cross. He has no other words that he quotes out of all the seven. And exactly the same thing happens in the Gospel of Mark. In other words, Mark and Matthew are the only, uh, the only word that Mark and Matthew, that Matthew and Mark give us uh, is this word. Luke will give us three other different words, and John will give us the other three words, and that, that makes the seven words. is Matthew and Mark, which is interesting because Matthew is the longest gospel, and Mark is the shortest gospel. Matthew is the most of Jewish of the gospels, and Mark is the most Roman of the gospels. Matthew is longest, sermons... And Mark is a very Roman, very action-packed, very short, is the shortest of the Gospels. It's almost as if they want to cover the entire spectrum of humanity. And it begins with utter darkness and the question why. And it finishes with utter darkness and the question why. Uh, in the last several months, uh, at the beginning of this year, many churches throughout the Chicagoland area preached through a series of seven questions uh, in a series called Explore God. All over the city, you would see the signs in the posters and uh, bus signs and um, just saying Explore God. And Explore God really explores seven questions that, um, that we believe that people have that have to do specifically about God. And I felt like some of those questions were really good. But some of those questions most unbelievers really never ask. Until you get to the one question. The one question about suffering and evil. You might have been watching a movie. And you know in the middle of the movie. In the darkest moment of that movie. At some point somebody will end up asking the question. In some way or another, why? Why me? Or why us? Or why God? Maybe not a movie, but maybe you've been in a funeral. And in the darkest moment of the funeral, being in funerals when people are weeping tremendously. And especially if it's a funeral not for an older saint who lived a full life, but for a young 
man or woman who, who has not been able to live his life fully. And someone would weep deeply and yell out to heaven, why? And here in the darkest of moments, the darkest of moments, literally dark, but also symbolically dark, Jesus utters the same, the one, the human, the most human of questions is why, why? It's interesting that uh, eventually in the, gospel, in the book of Acts, uh, Peter will explain this moment by saying, you have killed the author of life. In other words, like, you know, the one who gave all of life, what do humans do with him? We dash out they shout death. Jesus is experiencing evil in its most extended way. Human evil, the undeterred human evil. The most that humans can give, Jesus is experiencing it. At that very moment, we are killing the author of life. And now... Uh, Entire religions have been built around the question, what do we do with evil? How do we respond to evil? Uh, this Jorgen Moltmann is a, one of the most important theologians of last century. Uh, he was a German young man in uh, his middle of his 20s. He ended up in a uh, British uh, prisoner camp. And um, he had a Bible, a German Bible. He read through it. And as he was going through the Gospel of Matthew, he got to the point where Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he says this. He gave his life to Christ. The moment he said, now here's a man who understands exactly how I feel. Really, uh, when we think about the question of evil, what can we say about it? And um, Tim Keller is quoted saying something like this. Like, none of us really know. I mean, the extent of evil and suffering and pain that every single human being is going to experience is going to be different for each one of us. But the one thing that we can say is that we can clearly know. that We don't understand the purpose of evil in our lives, but we can clearly know that it is not because God doesn't love us. Because he will go to as much extent as he can to show us that he is there at the farthest of reach of the darkest of moments of all of our lives. I have a friend that, uh, um, that is a missionary in uh, Querétaro, Mexico. And um, he grew up, uh, I asked him to tell me his testimony. He said, hey, I grew up in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. And, uh, you know, I grew up to a, uh, an atheist family. We love being an atheist family, he says. And, you know, my atheism, our atheism served us well. You know, especially if you want to go to a good restaurant on Sunday, you know, Sunday at around noon. And, like, thank God for all those believers that, you know, like, uh, especially because I didn't have to get up early every Sunday morning, you know, and many other reasons why as he grew up until he arrived at Northwestern University, his college years, and his family started going through a very bitter divorce. He started experiencing evil like he had never encountered before. And I love the way he says it because he's refined his wording and he says, 
and I began to question my atheism because it wasn't big enough for the darkest and most difficult of moments of my life. It was good and dandy when all, everything was going well, but when I encountered evil and dark in my life, my atheism had no answers for me. He said, I started reading the Gospels, and I got to Matthew, and I found a God who could walk with me in the darkest of moments. The deepest hole in all of the planet is found in central Mexico. It's a hole that is not big. It's not bigger than, you know, the opening is not bigger than this auditorium. And um, it, when you get there, it's, it's surrounded by vegetation. And when you go, people go from all over the world. When you get there, uh, you will hear a rumbling coming from the ground. It's almost as if, there, as if there's an earthquake every morning. You don't know what's happening in the darkest of the caves of all of, you know, of all of the planet. But what happens is that eventually it's called the cave of swallows. Eventually, swallows who are, have been flying from the bottom up, they eventually come out in cycles. You know, like they are going in spiral. They fly out into the heaven and then they take off and you don't see them. They disappear. Around 6 o'clock in the evening, they come back. And if you're standing at that very place, you would hear the loudness of, you know, like a storm. It swallows from all over the place, kind of gathering up top, way up in the sky, and then eventually going spirals and go down deep into the hole, and they spend the night there. But if you're there, once they have left in the morning, what people do is they jump into the hole with a parachute. They say that is one of the most exhilarating moments of their life is to jump into utter darkness. I would never do it. <laughs> but if I had to do it, I rest, uh, I rest very secure on the fact that they never let you jump unless you jump tandem with someone else. Christians throughout history have felt as they've encountered the deepest of darkness, that they're falling into a hole. That cave, the Sears Tower, I guess the Willis Tower, I'm sorry, uh, would fit perfectly into that hole. And as people jump into utter darkness, as believers have jumped into utter darkness, they have felt the terror of all of human evil encountering their hearts. But those who have jumped tandem with Jesus would find a voice from someone right behind them saying, do not be afraid. I have gone through this hole. Ultimately, we could never celebrate Resurrection Sunday rightly unless we have experienced the deepest and dark, darkest moments of Good Friday. And believers have found that God himself has come into this world. And he experienced to the end, to the utmost, the darkest, the dark, darkest darkness that humanity and evil 
can dish out. And on that Friday afternoon, in the middle of darkness, there is no hope. I want to invite you to taste that darkness. Because if you do, then Sunday morning would be the greatest moment ever. Amen. Thank you so much, Pastor Paco, for that word. Pastor Gregory also for that word. You know, as we think about Christ and his love for us and his extreme sacrifice on that cross, Pastor Gregory talked about the work of redemption that Christ was doing on the cross and how it exemplifies the obligations, the responsibilities that we have not only to be reconciled to God vertically, but to be reconciled to one another horizontally. You need to know that the preachers that I invite every year, I invite on purpose. In an attempt to display that horizontal reconciliation made possible by the vertical reconciliation that we have in Christ. It is not by accident that you hear a voice from Africa and the voice from Mexico and the voice from Venezuela and Honduras or a white European voice, Americanized, a Jamaican voice, Americanized. That's not by accident. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Only God can take people from so many different parts of the world and teach us how to love one another and to be reconciled to one another and to worship together in one accord. Only God does that. And so as we turn now to our communion time, I want to remind us of what the Lord Jesus himself reminded us about communion. Communion is a time to reflect on the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for us. But there are a few requirements before we partake. There are a few things to keep in mind that are warnings for us because of the sacredness of these elements. First of all, the communion are for those who have come to faith in Christ, who, have, who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They know for sure that they, they have a home in heaven, they have their sins forgiven, and they have that assurance of salvation. To eat and drink of this cup without 
a saving knowledge of Christ, the Bible says, is to eat and drink judgment unto yourself. So if you're not assured of salvation, no one is going to look down on you for letting the elements pass by. Secondly, the Lord Jesus said, this, these elements of his body and blood are for those Christians who have kept short accounts with him. By that we mean that there's no unconfessed sin in your life that you're aware of. And so, like one of the preachers said already today, we are to search our hearts and allow Christ to cleanse us and to forgive us. I think it was Pastor Ricky that was quoting that old hymn, I was sinking deep in sin, far from the blissful shore. But the master of the sea, he heard my cry and lifted me. And now safe am I. You will be very unsafe to eat and drink of this cup and this bread if you regard iniquity in your heart. And so we always give you an opportunity to close your eyes and pray a simple prayer asking the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin and convince you of righteousness, to lead you in repentance of any sin harboring in your heart and mind. If there's a brother or sister that has grieved you in some way and you're holding unforgiveness in your heart against them, this is the time to release them and to ask Christ to forgive them and to let it go so that you do not participate in eating and drinking the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner. And so, Father, thank you for the promise found in 1 John 1, 9, which says if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We claim that promise, that precious promise we claim and apply to our hearts right now. We say thank you. Thank you for forgiving us and cleansing us. And indeed we forgive those who have sinned against us today. We release them into your hands, into your care, that you might teach them the way of righteousness. Help us not to hold grudges. Help us not to become bitter. But help us to forgive as we have been forgiven. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as the ushers come to receive these elements, I want you to know, if you've never used these before, these are packages of the grape juice and the bread that is in one package. And hopefully you have some fingernails, at least one long enough to bend open this very top and then you just hold it like this and you peel it very carefully so that you don't spill the juice. And you peel one, one piece off the top 
And when you peel it off, both the juice and the bread are exposed. And so once you receive it, you can carefully peel it off. And then what we're going to do, we're going to take first the bread and you just slide it right out of the top and you hold it until everybody is served and I will lead us in consuming the bread first and then the cup, okay? Ushers, please come. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. Lay behind the stone You live to die Rejected and alone Like a rose Trampled on the ground You took the fall And thought of me Above all Above all powers, above all powers, above all things, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're lay behind the stone you live to die rejected and alone like a rose trampled on the ground you took the fall and thought of me crucified crucified Laid behind the stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose, trampled on the ground, 
took the fall and thought of me you took the fall you took the fall and thought of me you took the fall you took the fall and thought of me above all on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed there in that upper room inside the old walled city of Jerusalem he took the bread and he broke it and he said this bread is my body that is broken for you and as often as you eat it, remember me. Let us partake together. Our Father, Thank you for sending your son to be brutalized and mortally wounded for our sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, I pray that you would teach us to live our lives, empower us by your spirit to live our lives in light of his punishing, vicious, violent death for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Also, while around the table, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood. And as often as you drink it, you are to remember me. Let's partake together. Father, thank you for this cup, a reminder of your blood shed for us. We are unworthy for such sacrifice. And we cannot thank you enough for going the distance, going all the way. Thank you for not letting the cup pass from Christ though he begged you. At the mercy. He begged you to let the cup pass from him and you never let him pass because of us and your glory. 
God, we're grateful. We're grateful. I pray that our lives would show the gratitude beyond our words. We're going to do in Christ alone. And it's just a great reminder of how that's all we can put our faith in. It's all we can put our trust in because he will never fail. In Christ alone. In Christ alone. My hope is found, He is my light, my strength, my soul, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when things are still, when striving sea. My comforter, my all that know, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. Till as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. For I am his, for I am his, and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask the ushers to come as once again as we prepare to receive an offering this afternoon. Here at Uptown Baptist Church, we believe that the offering is part of the worship experience. And 
that we worship the Lord in part by giving a portion of what he has allowed us to earn back to him. And this is a love offering in particular for the preachers that have joined us here today. And so we ask that you not only think about the sacrificial gift of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave it all, as we give a sacrificial gift back to him for those who serve him by way of preaching and teaching us the word of God. So Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to worship and giving. Make us cheerful and generous and faithful in our giving, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. This is nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus for my pardon. For my part in this I see Nothing but the blood of Jesus Love my cleansing this I plead Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh Precious is a flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is the last verse. Nothing can for sin. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done, nothing but the blood of Jesus, oh, precious
Good afternoon, church. <laughs> Much love from Grace Family Church, a 15-week-old infant church in Rogers Park. <laughs> Birthed by the grace of God, not the workings of men. John chapter 19, verses 28 through 29. It's the fifth word of Jesus. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hesop branch and held it to his mouth. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Jesus thirst if he was God? Why did he thirst if as the creator of the world, he was God? Paul would remind us in Colossians that in his full humanity and in his full deity, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, for the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So why would Jesus up on the cross say, I thirst? Did he all of a sudden lose his divinity? Thank God he didn't. It was Thursday morning. I was walking close to Dearborn, close to the Secretary of State office, to another destination. And as I'm walking, I look to my right and I see a bank. Now we're in the process of, of, of getting our paperwork straight as a church. And so I'm doing my homework and I'm, and I'm looking around seeing which bank would offer us the best deal. <laughs> We want to be good stewards of God's money. And as I walk in, I'm greeted by, by this man who you can tell has been in corporate America for some time. Uh, he was a clerk, dressed up nicely, his tie. He handled himself rather dignified. His name, we'll give him Byron. And Byron, as we began talking about my purpose of coming in, you could tell his countenance started to fall. I told him I was looking to open up a church account, and I needed to know what details I needed to know. Well, two minutes into our conversation, literally two minutes, I'm not exaggerating, Byron begins to open up about his life. And he begins to tell me how his 
family is falling apart. How he's falling into debt and can't seem to get out of it. How even his post-traumatic stress disorder, his PTSD is so grave that the medicine that the doctor is giving him is causing him to even slur his speech as he's speaking to me. And he's not able to get his thoughts right. And then he tells me, five minutes into our conversation, that the past year he's tried to take his life twice but hasn't mustered up the courage to take it. I did all I could do as I pointed him to Christ. I pointed him to the gospel. But Thursday morning, I saw a man who was thirsty. I saw a man who was thirsty for healing. I saw a man who was thirsty for hope. I saw a man who was thirsty for only what God could mend. See, Jesus thirsted at the cross. And I just came up with three primary reasons. Maybe you can come up with more. But I think these are anchoring reasons. And the first one, actually John gives us a picture of why. He states it here. Jesus thirsted at the cross to fulfill all that God had promised. You see, since the beginning of time, the promise was for Jesus to thirst so that humanity wouldn't. Everything the Old Testament was pointing to was pointing to Jesus. It wasn't pointing to us. It started with God and it continued with God. John gives us a hint here when he says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. In other words, Jesus knew that all things were now accomplished. The cross, God's redemption, his suffering. So Jesus' words here expressed his, serve, his thirst served as yet another confirmation of this climactic moment of redemption for God's people. This thirst was predicted as part of the sacrifice that was and must happen if the people of God would never thirst again. The Old Testament pointed to this. Psalm 22 tells us, verses 14 through 15, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it is melted within my breast. Check this. My strength is dried up like a pot shared, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Church, it was all pointing to Jesus, our Redeemer. So you see, when Jesus thirsted, he was fulfilling prophecy. In other words, he was fulfilling God's promises of a Messiah who would come and quench the thirst of our souls. So Jesus thirsted as a suffering servant so that God's promises would be made true for you and I. But there's a second reason why Jesus thirsted. 
And the second reason why Jesus thirsted at the cross was to show us that he too was fully human, even though he was fully divine. Now this is very important because, because God here doesn't give us a picture of a God who's aloof. Who has stepped back from our drama and said, get your act together. No, this is a picture of a God who says, I will step into your drama, I will step into your brokenness, I will step into your addiction, and I will carry it upon myself. And I will thirst the, 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 the desert that you have in your heart on your behalf. And God stepped, as we've heard earlier, into our darkness. See, Jesus thirsted to show us that even though he was without sin, he could fully understand the damage of our sin. The desert of our soul. He's not distant. He feels the pain. He carried the pain. And he put it on him. Put our brokenness on him. He put our sin upon him, our desperation those things, the demons, as Byron would say, that just haunt him day in and day out. Our lack of desire for Jesus, he put it on him. But there is yet a third reason why Jesus thirsted. And I would propose to you this. This is probably the, the central reason. And that was so that you and I might never thirst again. See, in the Old Testament, God threatened to make unfaithful Israel a parched land and fill her with thirst, Hosea 2.3. In the Old Testament, God threatened to make unfaithful Israel to take tongue, to take her tongue, the one afflicted by God's judgment, and have it stick to the roof of its mouth for thirst. Church, this is what we deserved. Such was the curse for our spiritual adultery. And it was this curse that Jesus took up. He took up the scarring of our sins, unfaithfulness, and offense to God. He took up the sour and bitter wine that we in our sinfully stained hearts and hands offered up to him the best we could. Our righteousness. And he placed it on his self. And he received God's wrath. What you and I deserved the white hot wrath of God, he took it upon him. And that's why he thirsted. He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become his righteousness. So church, you no longer have to thirst because Jesus quenches the thirst. You see, he, he, he thirsted for a moment so that you and I for eternity might be satisfied. And even though we drink from our broken cisterns, we drink from our 
polluted and putrid wells. Thinking that it will satisfy. Whether it be the respect that we long from others. Whether it be a position. Whether it be wealth or credibility or, or the grades or whatever it is that may give you meaning in life. And grant you justification. A sense of rightness. Jesus says, I've thirsted to make you right. All you need is me. <laughs> he is the source of living water. He said it himself. I'm not saying it. Those are his words. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me. That's where it is. A repentance and a belief. A trusting, a relying, a leaning on Jesus. As the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Church, you've been satisfied. Your thirst has been quenched. Relish in that. He thirsted so that you and I might be satisfied for eternity. I'm going to say uh, good afternoon. Um, I am the pastor of a church just a, a city block north of here on Lawrence and Sheridan. Missy O'Day, we've been in existence for five years. Praise the Lord. And uh, I'll just be honest with you. Our, our hope, our hope is to be like Uptown Baptist. That uh, decades from now, we would still exist. Decades from now, we, God's faithfulness would be on the play. We could recall story after story of what God has done in our midst. And so uh, thank you for the honor of being here today, Pastor Allen, Pastor Mark, and, uh, and the congregation here. Uh, it is, we look at you as um, the goal <laughs> of, of being able to be faithful this long in the city of Chicago. So thank you for your witness to that, uh, to us. I'm just going to read chapter 19, verse 30 of the Gospel of John. It says this, when Jesus had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. I don't know, how, have any of you ever taken personality profiles? Is that something that you have done in your life? Uh, I used to hate them because anytime I'd take them, I would find myself kind of in the middle of everything. So introvert, extrovert, like there's like an Xbox because they, they couldn't determine what I was, right? And so I found them very uh, unhelpful for me. And then a few later on in life uh, kind of declared what I am. And I was, now I love them. So there's something called the Enneagram. It's a new, new thing. And I am an Enneagram uh, I hate to say this, but an Enneagram 3, all right, this is, this is what I am. And essentially what has identified and how I've connected that to understand is that I am an achiever by nature. I desire success. I desire to accomplish things. If I go through a day and I don't do one thing, it could be cleaning the toilet or it could be writing a paper. It could be giving a sermon. It could be doing something, but I have to do something, otherwise I feel miserable. I feel like I just wasted my whole day. I feel like I've, I've just, uh, you know, I, I, it's, just, it's depressing to me. 
And I think all of us can probably relate to, in some ways to that when something, when you finish something, when you accomplish something, when you're victorious in some way, how good that makes you feel. Maybe you graduated from high school. Remember that? No more papers. No more tests. No more homework assignments. And you went home. I remember as an 18-year-old. Actually, I was 19 because it took me a year longer. And I remember feeling so good about that accomplishment. It just made, it just filled me up to overflow. And I think as we come to this, this passage and we begin to understand what Jesus is saying when he says, it is finished, that should, that should it's, it's not, I think sometimes we take it as, is Jesus finished? Is he dying here? Like there's an ambiguity within the English, but within the Greek, there is no ambiguity. These last three words mean that something is completed. The transaction is done. Whatever needed to be done, whatever agreement was in place is now fully and finally fulfilled, paid in full. This is actually, in the Greek, a happy word, a victorious word, a word of achievement. So what we need to ask this morning are two questions. What was finished? And why does it matter that Jesus finished it for us? Throughout the Gospels, we identify that Jesus, he said this over and over again so we can kind of understand. Why did he come to earth? What was his purpose? Why, did he, why was he here? And he made it abundantly clear that his reason for being here, his singular vision, his singular purpose, his focus, his drive, everything was to do the will of the Father. John 4, 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me, God the Father. So what was the will of the Father that Jesus would accomplish? And I think oftentimes in the church we've made it too narrow and we need to recognize all that Jesus accomplished. It's heightened at the end. We're going to get to that. But what did he accomplish while he was here? Here are a few. He fulfilled the law. Every last jot and tittle. He set the captives free. He loved his enemies. He preached good news to the poor. He resisted temptation from Satan. He lived a holy life. He gave rights to women they previously lacked. He reoriented family, the law, the temple, and the nation of Israel around himself. He lived perfectly each day by the power of the Spirit. He taught the way of the kingdom. He brought about the new covenant. He provided healing in the bones of the lame. Provided sight for the blind. Healed the sick. He forgave all types of sinners, sellouts, dropouts, addicts, sex workers, adulterers, revolutionaries, con artists, abusers, religious conservatives, and progressives, the greedy, the despised, the unclean, the half-breeds, the racist, the oppressors, and the thieves. He destroyed the works of the devil. He fought for the poor and the oppressed. He prayed for those who persecuted him. Instead of being served, he came to serve. And finally, among other things, I'm sure, 
what he completed most of all, and the thing that he is centrally saying here that it is finished, we have to go back to the beginning of John's gospel because he, John the Baptist actually predicts it. This is what he says. We're going back to the beginning of the gospel. The purpose of Jesus dying on the cross was laid out there. Twice it's repeated. Behold, says John the Baptist, as he sees Jesus coming toward him for the first time. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the whole world. So Jesus, on the cross, took on the weight of sin, your sin, my sin, our sin, the whole world's sin on himself, so that we might be forgiven and given the righteousness of God. Jesus is announcing at this moment, at this precise moment, when he seems defeated, when it seems like it's all over, when it seems like he is finished, that he is actually the conqueror. Christ the victor. He has done what he came into the world to do. He announces it's done, it's accomplished, it's completed. The one who is, was starving on the cross is the one who said, I am in the bread of life. The one who comes to me shall never hunger. The man on the cross who is dying of thirst is the one who said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The one who is about to enter the citadel of death is the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes and lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus became thirsty so that we would never thirst, as my brother just said. Jesus was hungry so that we could be forever filled. Jesus died so that we could be resurrected. All of these things are completed at the cross. So why does it matter? Why does it matter for us? Well, so that we could never hunger, so that we could never thirst, so that we could be resurrected, so that we can believe what Paul wrote in Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. But do we feel that way? I don't know about you, but in my church, and personally, I struggle. This may be actually one of the most difficult truths of Christianity to believe, to actually believe. See, I had a friend that had gotten out of prison for 20 years, and he started coming to our church. And we started talking about forgiveness, and his response was this, look, I know what it says in the Bible, but I just don't believe, I just don't believe that God could ever forgive me for all the things that I've done. At least he was honest, right? And there are other people that feel that way. And others of us maybe don't feel like God could never forgive us, but we don't know if it's ever enough. We feel like some days I'm just not good enough. Some days I just have to do a little bit more. Some days I have to just prove myself to convince God that I'm a good enough person. I have a whole lot of people in my church that consistently doubt Christ's finished work. They just can't seem to breathe in Christ's mercy and receive God's grace. Most of us spend our lives trying to convince one another that we're good people. That we've kind of, that we're good enough, right? And we approach the same, God, God, uh, am I, like, have I kind of crossed over? Have I fixed myself up good enough in order for you to fully accept me? And Jesus is saying here, it is finished. 
And I believe that how we respond to this story will determine how we believe. So I had a friend. Let's call him uh, Ben. And Ben got out of uh, prison as well. He had been in prison for 14 years, and then he moved into the shelter in the basement of our church. He came up because somebody invited him off the street one day, became a Christian, was baptized in our church, coming alive in Jesus, all right? He had done a lot of bad things in his life, some that he shared, some that he will never share with, with me and other people. One day we were stepping out of the building after having a Bible study with a number of other people, and we were walking towards the end of the block. You guys know the block, Marine and Lawrence, right? The BP station that charges too much for gas, right? You all know what I'm talking about. Everybody else is 50 cents cheaper. I don't understand it. Well, anyways, I was walking out, and I was, we were right at that corner, and all of a sudden we heard a pop, 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 pop. And I said, what, someone's shooting off fireworks, Tim? I, I, and, and my friend Tim says, no. And Ben comes in, he says, those aren't fireworks, Pastor Dave. Those are gunshots. And so me being 100 feet away from where this was taking place, guess what I did? I ran the other direction, right? My friend Ben decided that was not how he would respond. And he decides to take his wheelchair and wheel as fast as he could around that corner. And what he found was a man who was in his car had been shot five or six times in the chest, was bleeding to death. His, tr his car had run into a tree. Everyone has scattered. No one else is around. But Ben opens the door. And he says to this guy, he grabs him by the chest as this man's dying. And he says, I was just like you. And, and if not for God, I would be just like you right now. If you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter who you've hurt, doesn't matter how angry you are, how frustrated you are, how guilty you feel, how much you're reflecting on your life this moment. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ right now, your sins will be forgiven and you can live forever with Jesus Christ. And then he grabbed him and he said, Just believe. Just believe, just believe, just believe. He's saying this until the police show up. And the, you know, the, the ambulance shows up. And that man eventually died and he was unable to talk in that moment. I have no idea what his decision was. But do we believe that it is finished? And if that man who had done probably terrible things in his life, he was a known gang member in Uptown, had harassed and hurt and killed and destroyed other people's lives, that if in that moment he would have declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ and accepted his offer of free grace, that he would have been saved. That's what it means when Jesus says it's finished. Whatever we've done, no matter what we will do, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Amen? Amen.
amazing, first of all. Um, great word, great word. Um, but yeah. But, you know, it just, um, the, the idea of it is finished, that God has, he's completed the task. He's, he's defeated death. That, that's something I can put my hope in right there. You know, I, you, you can't just, you know, we, we, in our daily lives, we all, we're always, we're trying to find faith and putting our faith in something. We're always looking for something to feel secure and feel, you know, wrapped around and comfortable in. It, it doesn't really matter. Um, it doesn't really matter what we're, we're looking for um, un unless we're looking for Jesus. Because if we don't have Jesus, then everything else is meaningless. So, this is one of my favorite songs. It's called All My Hope. And it's got a nice, uh, good old church feeling. So why don't you all stand and sing this with me? See, I've been held. I've been held by the Savior. I fell fire from above And I've been down to the river Yes, I, I ain't the same A prodigal return All my hope is in Jesus And all my sins are forgiven, yeah. I've been washed by the blood. I'm no stranger to the prison. For shackles and chains, but I've been freed and forgiven. Yes, I'm not going back, I'll never be the same. Come now and say, All my hope is in Jesus. Thank God that yesterday's gone and all my sins are forgiven yeah I've been washed by the blood there's a kind of thing that just breaks a man Brings him down to his knees. God, I've been broken more than a time or two. Yes, Lord. Then you pick me up and show me what it means to be a man. 
come on and sing. Oh, my hope is in Jesus. Thank God that yesterday's gone. And all my sins are forgiven, yes. I've been washed by the blood. Come on and sing. Thank God that yesterday's gone And all my sins are forgiven, yes I've been washed by the Yes, it is now. This service has gone so long that the mic broke, actually. <laughs> I want to thank uh, Pastor Michael for letting me be here for the invitation. Uh, it's been great to know Pastor Michael and uh, just get to know the people of Uptown. Thankful, thankful for all the pastors that have been here uh, today as well and for what they've shared. So it's it's been great that you've all been so engaging because I'm last up and people are still awake, so thank you. <laughs> Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun had stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The very last moment of Jesus' life is a verbal acknowledgement on his part that he is putting himself into God's hands. The last thing that Jesus does is a symbolic representation of the entire Christian life. Think about that. The very last thing Jesus does is the very model of what our entire life is supposed to be about. Surrender to God. Us putting ourselves into his hands. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the very difference of saying, my life is in my hands, or my life is in God's hands. To be honest, I think that even though I call myself a Christian, I spend a lot of time trying to take things into my own hands. I have a tendency to hold tightly onto the things that God chooses to bless me with. I am on this lifelong journey 
trying to figure out how to hold my hands open and just let the things that God blesses me with rest there without trying to grip them, control them, and do what I want with them. The very breath that I breathe is from God. And what I do with my breath so often is my choosing. But to get to that point of surrender, learning not to take ownership, but to have stewardship. Something else that I thought about as I read this passage is that Jesus' life here, everything being put into God's hands is very similar or the same as what happened at the very beginning of Jesus' life. Jesus' life, coming to earth as a human, was to voluntarily put himself into Mary's hands. The Son of God choosing to put himself into somebody else's hands. Jesus entered this world vulnerably, needing to be held by human hands. Jesus grew up to be a carpenter molded by Joseph's hands. Jesus began his ministry being baptized by John's hands. Jesus traveled, taught, and ministered in a country for three years controlled by Roman hands. Jesus' robe was gripped by a bleeding woman's hands. Jesus' feet was anointed and washed by Mary's hands. Jesus was arrested and betrayed by Judas's hands. He was beaten and he was flogged by angry hands. He was nailed to the cross by a soldier's hand. And here, with his last breath, he's placing his spirit in God's hands. Into your hands, Jesus prays, in the garden, not my will, but your will, Jesus cries. Paul writes in Philippians, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Again, I'm reminded how this life of Jesus, always putting himself into other people's hands, stands in a stark contrast with myself. We are the ones who are always reaching, clawing, clutching, grabbing, manipulating, looking on how we can get ahead, do the things that we want to do, figuring out how we can finagle this life and make this life work out the best for us. Here we see a life of Christ releasing, trusting, accepting, abiding, surrendering. It's all about control, isn't it? We all want it. Let's admit it. We all like to be in control or at least have the feeling that we're in control. I mean, my wife makes me think I'm in control, but we know that I'm not.
There is this safety and there is this security that we feel if we know that we're managing our lives, we've got a grip on it, and things are sort of turning out and working out the way we want them or have envisioned them to work out. Into my hands I commit my education because choosing the career is about what I want to choose. Into my hands I get to choose where I want to live because I want to live where it works best for me in a place that I want to be. Into my hands I commit my finances because my needs come before God. My needs come before others. Into my hands I commit my spouse because I can change them. Into my hands I commit my children because I know what's best for them. Into my hands I commit morality because I am the best judge of what is right and wrong. It's all into my hands, into my hands, into my hands. It is so uncomfortable for me to look at the cross when I'm putting everything into my hands. Because when I view it, I cannot escape that I am called to surrender. And I know we call ourselves Christians, don't we? And we, we've been following Jesus for so long, or we say that we have, but how good are we at surrender? And I'm saying this because I understand my own life. And this is the battle I fight on a daily basis. Learning to put my heart, my mind, my body, my soul, my spirit, my plans, my dreams, my aspirations, everything into God's hands. God is calling me to die so that Christ might live. Oh, how I just do not want to die. I have so many things I want to accomplish I have so many hopes and dreams. If I can somehow get around the cross, if I can somehow take a path that doesn't even let me cross, if there is only just another way, do not remind me, Jesus, about how with your final words you committed every last bit of your spirit to God. Everything, his physical body had been given up. Everything that he had left, back to Christ, back to God. Oscar Romero writes, To each one of us, Christ is saying, If you want your life and mission to be fruitful, like mine, do as I do. Be converted into a seed that lets itself be buried. Let yourself be killed. Do not be afraid. Those who shun suffering will remain alone. No one is more alone than the selfish. But if you give your life out of love for others, as I give mine for all, you will reap a great harvest. Today, this afternoon, on Good Friday, as we think about the cross, 
And as we think about Jesus' last words of saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, we are reminded that God's hands are reached out towards us in this very moment. God's hands are extended your way. God's hands are extended my way. And the invitation is for us to put all of us, our whole self, our dreams, our goals, our families, the, everything into those hands. Into his hands. May we this afternoon choose to breathe our last. And may God now breathe through us. Amen. Well, amen. Wow. Amen. Our God is good. And all the time, God is good. We've come to the time for decision. You've heard seven preachers this afternoon. You have sung songs of worship and adoration of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've taken communion. You've prayed. And now there's a time for commitment. What is our response? To the word of God that has been revealed to us today. In the bulletin that you received this afternoon, you should have a sticky note in that bulletin. And in the back of the chair in front of you, there should be a pencil. If you don't have one, a pen or pencil of your own, there should be one in the chair in front of you or somewhere on your row. And this is a time in our service where we think about perhaps some besetting sin. If you need a, a sticky note, by the way, the ushers will hand one to you if you don't have one already. And Herman, you can bring one for me, please. So I want you to use that sticky note and write on there, maybe it's somebody's name that you need to forgive or somebody that you have trouble getting along with. And you need to put that person in God's hands because clearly you have not dealt with them well with your own hands. Or perhaps they have not dealt with you. Maybe it's somebody that has abused you in the past. Emotionally, physically, verbally, sexually. And you have not yet let that person go. You need to put that person in the hands of Christ this afternoon. Maybe it is a wayward child that has gone away from what you have taught him or her. Perhaps they've left the church, left the faith. Maybe they're engaged or involved in some activity that you know is a sin that has put Christ on that cross. And you want to put that person in the hands of God. Maybe it is a financial need or worry that you have. Maybe it is a sickness or disease that you're dealing with. And you want to put that in Christ's hand today. 
I don't know what it is that you need to put in the hands of Christ. I know what I need to put there. So what I'm going to ask you to do in a moment, after you've written down that thing or that person or that place on your sticky note, you're going to do an exchange. You're going to come and place that sticky note on the cross and then you're going to take from the cross one of these nails these nails are up here for you these are what we know as masonry nails they may have been a nail like this that held the hands and feet of Christ on the cross but there for you to exchange as a reminder that that thing or that person, whoever or whatever it is, today you've left it at the cross. And this will remind you every time you touch and feel this nail, maybe in your pocket or see it in your purse or your wallet or on your desk or in your Bible where you will keep it, it's a reminder to you that it's finished. Whatever that issue is, it's finished. Whatever that need is, it's provided for. Christ has it under control. And it's no longer under your control or manipulation, but it's his. It's his burden, it's his problem, it's his thing. Now, because you've left it there with him. And so I'm going to pray. If you're here and you need to trust Christ for salvation,